0: Greetings, podcast listener. If you are new to the show, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double Podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in snowy Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you've listened to the show before, well, welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete told through the stories of the important influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Liz Durant is my guest this week. She's a mom, wife, empty nester, personal trainer, fitness and nutrition coach, and a lover of all things active. And at the age of 60, she's also an ultra distance runner. I guess like some runners, she gravitated toward trail running when the road running injuries began to pile up. Although her running history is relatively short, she only started running in her 40s, her list of running accomplishments is quite long and includes more than 20 marathons and countless ultras. But of all of those challenges, perhaps the most daunting test was navigating menopause. She applies that experience now to her peri and postmenopausal coaching clients helping them build well-rounded exercise and nutrition programs. Liz is a firm believer that with age comes wisdom, but perhaps just as important is experience. She has both. Well, here she is, Liz Durand. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to see you.
1: I know. We never see each other on camera very often.
0: <laughs> well, lately we, lately we, we haven't done a whole lot of seeing each other in person either. <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah, the, the pandemic certainly put a crimp in uh, in all of our racing styles and um, the opportunities that you and I would have had to cross paths um, uh, really just haven't been there for us the last few years. Nevertheless, uh, you and I do a a good job of staying in touch. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, But it is nice to see you um, face to face. Um, So I'm I'm really uh, interested and eager to to dive into uh, into Liz the athlete and Liz the coach. And we've got a lot of uh, we got a lot of um, uh, interesting topics to cover. Uh, You and I share um, some common interest uh, that I want to uh, explore a little bit. But for the listener who doesn't uh, know who Liz Durant is, um, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, Again, my name is Liz Durant, and we have lived in New Hampshire now for about 17 years or so, um, having moved all over the country for about 15 years prior to that with um, sort of the corporate uh, transitioning from one state to another. And over that period of time, um, raised family, um, was very involved in a lot of communities. And when we moved to New Hampshire, I was fortunate enough to get connected with some pretty active running groups. And I'd been running for, at that point, Uh, fairly uh, seriously for about uh, six years, and when we came up here, I certainly found um, sort of my community of running folks that I enjoyed running with all the time, so I currently um, have my own wellness business. I actually have a background in finance and accounting, so that's what I started out doing straight out of of college until we started doing a lot of moving around, and then I had a few home-based businesses while the kids were young, um, and sat on a number of boards. And then when we were living in Tennessee, I happened to wander down to a brand new state of the art fitness center that was opening up. I just started running very competitively. So I was looking for a place to cross train and things like that. And the manager there who'd been the manager or general manager of a Y locally said, you know, I think it'd be great if you went and got your personal training certification and started to work here. And so I was looking to fold towels. I mean, that's really what I was looking to do. So, um, I said, sure, why not? As long as I can do it part-time around school hours and and my husband's travel and things like that, then I'm all in. And uh, and she was awesome. So I went and got my certification and started to train down there. And when we moved up here, I took up uh, fitness instruction on top of doing personal training and spent about 12 years um, teaching a lot of fitness classes, everything from spinning to Les Mills body pump to Pilates to you name it. I would teach just about everything except step because I'm too uncoordinated and yoga because I can't bend like that. So for the most part, I, you know, I was I was willing to teach, um, you know, just about anything and everything all over the Concord area. So I finally left a a a, um, a business manager job that I had here in Concord and took my business full time into fitness and wellness, um, and adding in some nutrition coaching um, and really working with clients over the last almost twenty years now, um, working to help them achieve their goals. So it's really been sort of a journey. I've always considered myself a late bloomer. And so not coming into uh, the sort of the fitness space or the wellness space um, or even the endurance running space until I was into my forties um, was a very different path than a lot of other people. So, and it's been quite quite a journey and a lot packed into 20 years. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really been an evolution really for me as a person and as a professional. Um, and there, I think there aren't too many mornings I don't get up in the morning and say, I love what I do. In fact, I got asked yesterday what if there was no object, what would you do? And I said the same thing, but I'd travel and do it. And, you know, and they said, wow, that's cool. I said, yeah, because really, and truly I get up every morning. I love what I do. I love what I do. And I love the people I work with and I love what I do myself. So um, it's it's not often that you can get up and do that and say that every single morning at 60. So, um, so I love it. And that's really where I feel as if I've taken sort of my journey to this place, which um, I call a little bit of my sweet spot um, at this point. So, um, so that's really where I have come from and where I have landed at this point in time.
0: So, um, I want to get into a, a little bit more about um, um, why you started running and your and your running evolution, um, because it's, you know it's it, it's during that time um, that um, well, at, at some point during that time, not at the beginning, obviously, but at some point during that time, um, you and I came to know each other. Um, we, we you know, to, to, uh, I, I think you, you, you made the point to me in our, our, um, our, our, our pre-show, uh, brief that, um, you know, that you, you haven't been here in New Hampshire for all that long. I mean, may, maybe now relatively speaking, but you're, you're, you're not a long, long time native. And so, um, when we were, we, we were chatting about, um, you know, when you and I came to, to know each other, it is, it is during this, this period of time that, um, um, you know, or during this period of time in, in, in which you became, uh, became or started, started running, um, share with the listener, if you will, um, your recollection of, of, of how you and I came to know each other.
1: Sure, absolutely. So when we moved here in 2006, I was, you know, uh, like, ear deep in running road marathons. And it was running, you know, a few a a year and um, logging a little bit of traveling to do it, things like that. Um, And I started to show up a little bit on the local scene of some of the other races that were going on. But um, about 2014, 15, somewhere in there, Um, I started to migrate a little bit towards some trail running, which I had never done before. I'd always done road marathons and road racing. And um, I had done some track running both in Tennessee and up here. And with the onset of um, some injuries and through a uh, professional here in the Concord area, um, I was kind of redirected a little bit onto maybe you should try some trail running. And as a result, I started to, you know, explore some of the trails. Met a whole another community of full as a result, and that led me to um, show up at a race. And through a mutual friend, um, this mutual friend introduced m- me to you um, and said, "This is Chris Dunn, and he, you need to meet him." Is basically what I remember her saying. Um, she was a big follower of your races and what you were doing at the time. Um, and so that was my first sort of interaction and then subsequent to that showed up probably at a few more of, of, you know, of your races that you had organized. Um, and then in 2017, when I was, um, at a point where I really felt like I needed some coaching support, um, myself due to some injuries and the fact that I really was starting to hit, um, I was really well into, um, menopause at that point in time. And my, my whole running was changing, Um, And I really needed some, um, some accountability and really some support as I ventured through some of those changes and that evolution um, that led me to reach out to you and say, um, I I really need some help. I really need someone to guide me through this um, because I'm, I'm clearly not doing this well myself as much as I'm getting injured. And that's really what led us to work together was um, was your words saying, you have to trust me on this one, but you'll be doing less um, than you've ever done before. And me thinking, I don't know if I can do that and that was really the start of kind of our working relationship from that perspective. Um, and I, I would say a huge turning point for me um, mentally and physically um, from that perspective. But, um, but at that point, you know, I might as well have been labeled Humpty Dumpty. And, you know, every time I, you know, walked into you know, somebody's office, whether it was an orthopedist or, you know, a soft tissue specialist if some other body part was flying off. So I knew something had to change, something had to give, but I just couldn't, I couldn't come up with the right formula to change that and still not do what I love to do.
0: Well, I think, um, you know, your, your experience is a, is a great example that, um, you know, even, even, even the masters have a master, right? (laughs) So, um, and I, you know, I, I, I have given you credit and will continue to give you, you credit as a coach yourself um to be willing to accept and admit that you just can't coach yourself right it wasn't that you didn't have the knowledge uh, I mean clearly you were you were knowledgeable enough to, to build a, a, a training program um, but you were you know insightful enough to appreciate that y- you needed some some additional help and support um, yeah and that's and that's when our um, coach-athlete relationship kicked off in in 2017 we'll talk a little bit more about that as we as we talk about your uh your running evolution and your running journey um so you started running uh in your in your early 40s uh kind of take me take take us back to that time why um, <laughs> why, 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 throw right, why, why
1: in, did you ever do that? Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> why, why throw yourself into running yeah. in your, in your early forties?
1: Yeah. Fall, how did you fall down that rabbit hole? Right. Uh, well, I mean, I'd always been active as a, um, growing up my, I grew up in a, <clears throat> in a family where my mother was a single mom of three girls. She was very active. She was a tennis player. She was a golf champion. She, you know, she was very active, um, we grew up, of course, you know, growing up in the 60s and the 70s, we weren't necessarily as programmed as maybe my own children were um, as far as sports and things like that. So it was a little bit different because we still ran around and, you know, chased each other through the woods and fell over and cut ourselves and got back up and kept running. And but, you know, it's interesting because I played lacrosse um, through high school and all through college. Um, and I hated running and I hated I, because I was slow. I mean, I just felt like you know, I loved playing cross, I loved playing tennis, I loved playing other sports, mostly ones that were sort of hand eye coordination sports. Um, and I just despised running, I thought it was boring. And so, as I re- kind of grew, grew up through my 20s, I stayed active, I ran, walked, I did things like that. Um, and then, when we started moving around a little bit, I just kept up what I would consider to be sort of my recreational activity to one get out of the house a little bit. I pushed my oldest into baby jogger and my second one in a double jogger for years, Um, never did any competitive racing though. That was never on my radar screen. And then when we moved to Texas and we moved to Texas in June of 2000, and we, the first 30 days we were there, all 30 days were over hundred degrees. And I thought I was gonna lose my my mind basically. And you you try to get outside down there during the day and it's just way too hot. So I happened to connect once the kids were back in school with a couple of other women who ran. And so at the time I still had been a baby jogger. And so I started to run um, with them and then met through mutual friends, a gal who I still to this day call my very first running partner. And her husband was an Ironman triathlete, Kona a bunch of times. He trained his his thing. She, um, she was a runner, she'd done two marathons at that point. She was training for, she was thinking training for her third um, and said, why don't you, why don't you come running with me? So, um, so we started running together and that formed this beautiful friendship, running friendship, if you will. Um, our kids, we had a couple kids that were roughly the same ages. So we crossed paths and we uh, worked around everybody, each other's schedules and things like that. And that's kind of when I got bitten by the bug. And I'll never forget my very first run of eight miles at the time. And being like, wow, I've never run that fast in my, I've let far in my life. And she looked at me, she goes, yeah, you could train for a marathon. And I looked at her and I started laughing. I said, you're kidding, right? I, I don't like to run. And she said, no, seriously, like you you, you could re- easily run a marathon if you train. So that started the, the seed being planted, of uh, you think? And so slowly but surely I started to buy into this idea of training with her for this third marathon. And, you know, of course, running in Texas is relatively flat where we were, that part of Texas, and it's awfully hot. Um, but we trained for the Dallas White Rock Marathon, which was a December marathon. Um, and we trained together for the entire time. And um, and I ran it and never thought I could ever do anything like that in my life. But it was really like this light bulb went off in my head about running these kinds of distances and Um, I was fortunate enough that day to qualify for Boston in my first marathon. And that unfortunately was the rabbit hole, because once that happened, um, it really became almost like you're pulling on the thread even more and more and more. Like, what can I do? What more can I do? And so um, it it really was sort of the budding of that, you know, sort of that passion for running long distances. And um, again, living in both Texas and then up in the Memphis area, um, where it is hotter than heck and humid as heck. Um, but absolutely incredible running communities. Um, I got tapped into these running communities that were amazing. And so always had people to run with tons of organized races. So I just kept plugging away at you know at, at running mar- at running marathons, trying to work and started to do more s- sort of specific road marathon training, with speed work and tempo work and things like that. I picked up strength training in my early 40s because I knew I needed it. Um, and learn more about cross training. And that was kind of actually the seed that started to plant for, for getting into personal training.
0: So, um, so, so during that time, or actually help me to help me to put a, um, help me to put a sort of a timeline on this. Um, You started running in your early 40s. Um, I'm Trying to count up the number of marathons you've done, you probably know the number uh, off the top of your head. It, to me, it looks like it's at least a dozen, probably closer to fourteen or fifteen. Uh, how many marathons uh, have you done? By the way, road so
1: marathons. road marathons twenty three.
0: 20, okay. Um, 23. All right. Yeah. yeah. That that was a, that, uh, that was counting very quickly. There are a lot of them, um, that you've done multiple times, right? Multiple Boston times. five mm-hmm. times, Providence twice, Marine Corps three times, Dallas White Rock three times, uh, Memphis St. Jude twice. So, um, what's the time frame, or what was the time frame? Um, uh, how long were you doing these, uh, how long were you into, to marathoning? What are we talking five years? Are we talking a decade?
1: About 10. Yeah. About 10. My first one was at 40 and that was, and then I was doing about two, sometimes three a year, depending on yeah. where we were. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny the, it used to be that, you know, when we moved every two years, I'd say, well, there's a marathon in September. Can we kind of move like about three months beforehand so I can get my 12 weeks of training in? Yeah, would we'll be good. So, and I would sort of plant out in my head, like, okay, if we're going to move to Memphis, it's really not a great time to run a marathon in August. So maybe, you know, so I would have like all this percolating in, my, in the back of my head. In the meantime, I mean, I loved coming up and running Boston because we're, I'm from Connecticut. Um, I had family in the area. So, and we'd lived in Boston prior to moving to Chicago. So, you know, for me, coming back home and running marathons um, was a lot of fun. Going to Marine Corps because of my family in D.C., um, one of my probably my all time favorite marathon is Marine Corps. And I really loved the regional marathons I, when they were super well supported. Um, also, you know, we, like I ran New York once, which was a lot of fun. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to run a really spectacular marathon it's just plain strains and automobiles, though, I, you know, you just to get to the start line is an ordeal, as it is with Boston, so, you know, you really, you, know, you do them because they're really extraordinary marathons to do, um, but I have to say, this, the soft spot in my heart really was these, these regional marathons, St. Louis was really a great marathon, and so those were ones I kind of looked for that were near, near, with the radius of where we lived, so within about 10 years, from about forty, and I think I ran my last my very last marathon was Boston. Um, and that I think was in 2015. So,
0: so what? You know, there yeah, were probably what, about
1: a total of 15 years by the time I ran my last one, but the last few years were fighting through some, some injuries.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, so clearly you had a thing for the marathon distance, right? I mean, uh, you know, m- more than 20 marathons is a, is a little bit more, well, it, it's at least an obsession, uh, with the marathon distance, right? Because, uh, uh, as you well know, um, there's a significant, um, time and effort commitment to prepare for a marathon. Uh, it isn't as though you can just roll out of bed and run one. Uh, what, what was it about the marathon distance that, uh, that was that, uh, attractive for you?
1: I think it was, I think it was multi-pronged. I mean, this is where, you, you know, we, we, can, we can sort of segue a little bit into sort of the, you know, physical, emotional, mental um, space around getting into your 40s. Um, you know, for, for, for me, some of it was, it started out as just a way to get, you know, sort of escape or space, uh, you know, have time to think, um, you know, I do my best, I do my best meditating when my feet are moving, um, you know, things like that. Um, and having some, you know some running partners, running friends um, that really became kind of the you know your your support group, if you will. Um, you know when you when you've got your kids at home and you're running around a million miles an hour. But I think the thing that really, I think the bug that really bit me was that I I marveled at what I felt I could test my body to do. And although I'd grown up really active and played lacrosse all through college and even after college, it was that was different. And when you're running for yourself, by yourself, with yourself, there are all different kinds of thoughts that go through your head than when you're running with a lacrosse stick down a field trying to make pass to score a goal. It's just a different, you know, it's a different mindset and running for me became as much therapeutic as anything else and as my body was starting to you know enter the the perimenopause phase and i you know going through changes and things like that um it was a way to develop this incredible mind-body connection that i never really had this awareness of a really strong mind-body connection that i never really felt I guess I recognized and realized that I hadn't had it prior. I don't think I mindfully knew that in my 20s and 30s. But once I got into my 40s, I really realized that there was so much more to that mind-body connection than I had ever explored. And finding myself being able to do things that, in my mind, I never, ever thought were possible. You know, I never put a marathon on my wish list. I never thought that that was a long-term goal for me. Um, until I was almost challenged <laughs> by, you know, by my running partner to say, you know, yes, you can. And I do believe there's a strong component of not only believing in yourself, but also other people believing as well. And I think this is the one of the things I see with a lot of the people that I tend to interact with sometimes is, you know, our our physical uh, physical abilities are directly tied to how we feel about ourselves sometimes. And that's that mind-body thing that sometimes can hold us back. It can also, it can also propel us forward. And as I got sort of further, further and further and further into my sort of my working knowledge of running a marathon um, and realized that it's as strategic as anything else. And, you know, well, if I strength train, what will happen? And if I go out and I do Yasso 800s on the track, what will happen? And, you know, that developing that curiosity around the mind with the body for me was just this whole exploration of something I had never done before. And maybe I just did it a lot later than a lot of people. I'm not sure about that, but um, yeah, well, that's really for me it happened.
0: Well, I mean, you... You know that that um, that that mind body connection is a is a integral component of our work together now as mm-hmm. as coach athlete. Um, I, so, with someone like yourself with as much uh, experience at the marathon distance uh, as you uh, have or have, um, what's the most important thing you learned about running marathons? If someone said, "Liz, give me one." pearl of wisdom about running the marathon i'm i'm going to be running my first marathon what's the what's the most important thing that for me to know
1: honor the distance yeah plain and simple i mean
0: elaborate yeah elaborate on that i agree with you by the way but elaborate on that
1: um and i think this you know this circles back to the comment about you know it's not everybody can roll out of bed and run a marathon tomorrow. Well, there are plenty of people that do it. I mean, and and of course, you know, and I'm sure as a coach too, it's like, you know, don't even tell me that. But there are plenty of people who do it. And yet what I think you realize over time by doing multiple marathons, by um, by starting at one place and finding ways to grow through the process and really <clears throat> sort of committing to the process and trusting the process the the mental process of training, as you and I have talked about a lot, even through my work with you, the mental process of the training is far more impactful many times than the actual result. And one of the things that um, and I even say this to my, you know, the people that I work with, too, is. It may seem at times like you're not quite sure where this is going, right? And your your body may tell you that you're tired or that you can run faster in that training run or that, you know, it, it's a, it's okay to, you know, veer off that training plan and go a different direction. But really, that process is designed for a reason to, and you have to trust it, because when you get to that starting line, and I used to say this to myself at every starting line that I walked up to, as long as I could say it truthfully, you've done the training, you've trusted the process. Now it's just up to the day. And honoring that distance and being respectful of what it is that you're that you're um, training to do, I think is one of the biggest things that one can commit to and it can have amazing results during the actual race because it will just keep coming back to you. Trust the process, come to the start line, trust the training that you did. Your body's going to respond. And knowing that at mild 19 or 20 or 22 is sometimes the only thing you're hanging on to.
0: Yeah. Truth is that, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the result of the day that defines who we are, it's who we become in the process of preparing for the event. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's always the case, right? It's, and it's the difference between uh, a, a journey-based mentality or a destination-based mentality, you know? I mean, do you, do you run marathons simply t- to experience the moment of having the medal put around your neck or, or do you run marathons because of the journey, this 12 to 16-week journey to get there and the discovery, um, you know, lear- learning more about yourself? What, what am I capable of? Because you, you know all too well, Liz, that, um, that truthfully, the most impressive part of running a marathon is the 12 to 16 weeks of training that is required in order for you to do it you know, as well as you can possibly do it. That to to me that is always the most impressive thing about about uh, about running marathons is the preparation. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt it's still 26.2 miles, uh, and all of the challenges that the day will present. Um, but it's the hundreds and hundreds of hours of preparation that truly are the most impressive part of of, of running a marathon. Do you, do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely, and I think the growth there's always physical growth with putting in that many hours of doing whatever it is you do, whether it's biking or running or, you know, whatever it is swimming. Um, but the real growth, I think that can happen if you're willing. I mean, there's this whole sort of readiness and willingness that also has to be part of the equation, I think, um, is the mental piece. And I always, I always consider myself a very strong mental runner, um, in that, um, you know, I could compartmentalize a lot of some of the things that maybe other people would have struggled with throughout it. Um, I was also uh, one who was very, and this kind of goes back to, I think, to my numbers background, like a very strategic, logical runner. And, you know, and I had a very specific way in which I would approach it. Um, and so I think that what I found, at least again, in and in maybe because this happened in my forties, I was maybe more ready. I don't you know, who knows, right? Um, to explore some of this aspect of endurance sports is the whole mental piece um, and how, um, how I became, I think, tougher mentally for it, um, how I became much more calculating in some ways. Um, and I could, I could logically put the puzzle together which I liked. Um, And if all the pieces fit just the way that they were meant to, then I would have the confidence that I was, I literally had it locked and loaded. Now, on the flip side, they can also work against you. And I found that on a couple of occasions when things didn't go as planned. And I started to, you know, have that derailing, right. And um, a lot of times it had to do with the fact that maybe my body wasn't responding the way it had previously, I was starting to have some type of, you know, injury or niggle or something like that. And that started to play with my mental state in a way that sometimes felt really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, you know, like, oh, this hasn't happened before. You know, Why now? Why now? I've done everything right. And how how the skills around learning to deal with that and to move through that are something that took and still takes to this day, it's still something I work on all the time, a long time to develop because it really is a muscle in itself and how we exercise that muscle and use it. The only way I feel, again, this is just my perspective, but the only way I feel that it's going to get any stronger is to have it happen to practice using it. And to have stuff happen that you didn't think was going to happen or that you you'd done everything prevent from happening and it did. Um, and and so as a result, you walk away and you think, well, now I know that you know, I need to practice that muscle a little bit because then I can deal with it better. Maybe I dealt with it poorly, maybe I didn't handle it well, maybe I kind of caved in threw in the towel, you know. So I think that mental muscle of running that many marathons gave me. An amazing amount of time to practice it, you know, through hard training runs, through heat, through dealing with, you know, having three kids and a husband that traveled, and you know, you know, think moves, things like that, gave me a ton of opportunity to figure out. Well, how am I going to use this mental muscle to um, to still be able to achieve these things and feel good about it? And so, and sometimes things went better than other times.
0: Well, um, by your own admission, in in that. Um, you know, those, those last five years of, um, training for and racing marathons, um, uh, were met with some adversity. It was, you, you had some physical challenges in the last couple of years of, of marathon, uh, of marathon training. Um, and you know, that, that time course, right. 2015 is about the time that you begin to establish yourself, um, here back here in in new england in in new hampshire specifically and around about the time that you and i came to know each other my question is um was your was your evolution from uh from road running to trail running was it was at least in part because of some of the health challenges that you had faced uh uh, training and racing on on roads in those final few years
1: Mm -hmm. and you know, again, I, 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 I'm a firm believer in having a really good team <laughs> in terms of people that you work with providers, um, you know, coaches, you know, whomever it is. Um, and I happen to have a really good team at the time. And my last Boston marathon was 2015. I ran it with a stress fracture in my pelvis. Um, I sat in my kitchen the night before the race, it was pouring rain. It was supposed to be about, you know, 47 and raining for the marathon. And I literally was on the phone with uh, one of the members of my quote unquote team, body team, and saying, I don't know what to do. I was on the phone with another very, very you know, elite runner, Kristen Dineski going, I don't know what to do. Should I go or should I not go? I'm in a lot of pain. Um, I've done everything I can, I think, in the last two weeks to try and keep from making it worse. I didn't know what it was at the time. And so um, I made the decision that um, there wasn't a start line that I didn't go to and that afterward, would I have more regrets going to the start line and deciding not to start or starting and then pulling off the course versus sitting at home and thinking about what if. And so at the time I made the decision to go, Um, it was one of the, well, I shouldn't say it was the worst because I think probably last year ranked out there with the Boston Marathon, but it was one of the worst years in my recent memory of conditions in the marathon. And it wasn't but six, seven miles into it that I couldn't even run anymore. And I ended up, I, I, I remember um, uttering a fair number of expletives to myself um, at that point in time. I had a friend at mile 14 in Wellesley um, who was waiting for me if I wanted to come off the course. I had another friend working a water station at mile 10 um, who said she'd give me a ride home and that if if I couldn't do it? And I said, No, you know what, darn it, I'm just going to power walk the rest of this race. And I did. And I power walked the rest of the marathon in the soaking wet rain. I made a ton of friends. And um, I just spent the entire time just sort of going into my thoughts about what next. And because I knew at that moment that there was something that had to give. And that probably was, you know, in my mind, my lowest point. And I knew that at that point, that unless I changed something, that this was just to be a pattern of continued struggle and frustration. Um, and it was at that point when I got back and got the diagnosis of the stress fracture in the pelvis that um, that I knew that I had to make some big changes. Now, when I came into your sort of your radar um, from a coaching perspective, one of the things that we that that we addressed right out of the box was the fact that my volume was way out of whack, given the fact that I was in perimenopause, that I was running as much as I was, um, and I was teaching about 10 to 12 classes a week. Um, and that was one of those moments I knew that that's something that probably was contributing to a lot of the the overuse injuries that had been happening for the previous four or five years. Um, and this was the biggest by far. And yeah, so-
0: lived. Just just for clarification, when you when you say teaching classes, can you uh, Mm -hmm. can you can you provide? So at the time, yep. At the time, I was
1: teaching spinning. Um, I was teaching spinning two three times a week. I was teaching Les Mills Body Pump, which is a weight training class um, with a barbell. Um, I was teaching um, three or four freestyle classes, Um, so everything from um, you know Tabata to uh, cardio strength to um, you know, you name it, teaching it and then teaching Pilates a couple times a week and in various places all over Concord. So um, I was constantly on the go. And that volume combined with um, at the time, a lack of real understanding and respect for sleep and, and recovery was, was really the, con- like, that was kind of that nexus of, you know, of points where you know, it hit the fan essentially. I mean, that's really what it was. And, um, it really was kind of that moment in 2015 when I realized that something had to change and I struggled for a couple of years trying to figure it out myself. Um, not, not feeling as if I was making a lot of headway with it. And that's when, that's when I landed in, you know, in, in your, on your radar, um, in 2017, um, of I need, I need help to do this. I can't figure this out
0: myself um so so you 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 reach out to me and and uh and and we get connected as uh and and begin our coach athlete relationship and journey in and of itself in 2017 you're in your mid 50s at that point early 50s right at that point mm-hmm. 2017 if i'm doing the math right um your um And your running goals are beginning, are are evolving as well, right? So you, you, you know, you're, you, you, I suspect you presume that your, your, your road marathoning days are, are, are behind you and you're ready to sort of embark on this, this new, uh, this new, this new journey as it relates to your running. Where were you at that point intellectually about your running? Where, where did you see your running go, uh, or going as you, again, assembled this team and 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 brought me on where what what were your running related goals at that time in 2017
1: um at the time it was I didn't know (laughs) I mean that you know to be honest like you know you, you know I think you sort of sit there and you say what next right and um first first was to get healthy I mean that was the very first thing and um The that sort of that point in um, 2017 actually led to a couple of years of really digging in deep to some some self-care and wellness around everything from uh, bone health to um, hormone health to, you know, all these other pieces um, that were floating around um, that definitely were having were, were at play. Let's just put it that way. They were play, and one of the things that you know, as you're right, you're absolutely right. Like that, sort of that, um, that recognition or that reality of road marathoning, maybe um, in the rearview mirror. I never said never, though. I I think that's one of the things. Like I'm not, I'm never one to say never. Just not now, and that was kind of what I realized was it's just a not now for right now. Um, What I didn't realize at the time is that finding that other thing would actually um, really sort of eclipse that enjoyment and passion um, that I, at the time, I didn't think could be, you know, it's a little bit, that's sort of that evolution process too, right, is at the time, I think that's it, what am I going to do, this is the end, this is it, like this is the day you always think is going to come, and is this the reality? And so not really taking that, um, not really accepting that totally and, and saying, you know, it's just a not now for the time being. The most important thing is to get healthy and sort out some of these other things. Um, I learned a lot about hormonal health um, in, a, in a period of time between about 2017 and 2019, um, how it was affecting my health, um, how it was affecting how my body was responding physically to some things, um, seeking out more team members to help to understand that through some diagnostic testing, um, and really understanding what the levers were. And this actually really tails into my interest in working with women myself, going through a lot of the same things. I moved over to the trails in order to just kind of to, to ease off the roads from from my body, and. What I found there that I didn't even know existed was this amazing community. And as somebody who um, I thrive being part of communities, and I used to say that all the gyms that I taught in, all that I taught you know, fitness classes in, they were all my little communities. Um, this was something that I never expected to find. And, and that's why a little bit of that evolution is also remaining open and willing to looking for it um and finding that in the in the trail running community was this gift that I never would have expected and you know sure I knew about mountain running and I knew about you know ultra running but I never saw myself doing that I thought no my bread and butter is the marathon you know that's it right I found it and mentally I knew that if I was going to continue to do what I really enjoy doing that stepping up to the next challenge was going to mean doing some trail running at even longer distances.
0: Mm, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that next challenge. So, um, <laughs> when, when, did the idea, uh, emerge that you were going to go beyond the marathon distance and not only go beyond the marathon distance, um, but do it on, but do it on trails where, how did that come about?
1: Um, well, in a, in a twisted sort of, you know, a twisted sort of mental, you know, way, of course you think, well, because I'll be running slower, I can go farther. Right. Yeah, of course. So, you know, there was this whole, there was this whole sort of twit, like, like bulb that went off in my mind thinking, oh, I can actually go longer if I go on the trails. Well, that means I could probably run further. So, you know, I'm doing the math in my head of, you know, well, it's easier on my body. And we've got beautiful trails around here. I can go for forever um, and never get bored. And, you know, that was a little bit of the light bulb. And I also realized too that 26.2, as as much as, you know, I loved that distance. Like I just found that that was my my distance for a while. There was this allure, um, you know, this rabbit hole again of what if I could go a little further? What is another six miles? It's another loop around the woods. And, you know, all of a sudden that starts to grow. And again, because I had been introduced to this community of people where there were lots of people already running those distances, um, I started to, you know, ask a lot of questions and start to listen um, and start to just sort of watch what that would look like. And I put Vermont 50 as my first 50K. Um now some people might say it's a little crazy with the elevation but I knew that one a lot of people had run it that I knew so I had a lot of people you know to to lean into for support I knew you were familiar with it and so I knew from a training perspective I could I could mimic that training pretty well just being right around where I am right now So and that was the first 50k that I did was up in Vermont and I remember thinking to myself at the start line well, this is new, isn't it? And that was it, you know, so you, you've done this before. Okay. And that was it.
0: So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you had been bitten by the bug, uh, so to speak, but, and, and as I'll have you, uh, talk about here in just a moment, you've, uh, uh, you've gone on to do, um, uh, additional and, and, and many other trail races of, of ultra distance, but, but let me ask you this. So, um, um, at the time that you did the Vermont 50 K, um, you are a middle-aged woman You're in your, your mid fifties at that point. Um, <laughs> there couldn't have been a whole lot of other women, your age for you to look to for inspiration, or am I wrong about that? And and if I am wrong, um, who was your inspiration? Uh, were were there other? I mean, were there other women out there in their fifties and sixties kicking butt? Um, and, there was you, yeah, I, there were
1: some. Um, there was one, and I honestly don't remember her name. Who um, ended up playing in front of me at Vermont, and she was in her mid to late fifties, and very strong runner. And I chatted with her afterward and she, um, she raced a lot. And I, you know, I got a lot of sort of, you know, so how often do you run these, you know, 50 Ks and things like that? But, you know, for the most part, I, I've never, I've never associated my running ability with my age. I think in part, again, because I started so late, um, I was 14 and I was 20. You know, I was fifty thinking I was thirty, because in running years, right, I was young. In experience, I was very young, and that showed through at times. Um, and I always felt that it really, for me, it never had anything to do with my biological age. But there's, you know, there's a little bit of that running age, you know. So. I actually sort of drew, drew upon from people that I knew, um, such as Kristen Dineski, who was a very elite runner in, in, you know, in New England, um, just the experience that they had running ultra races um, because they had more running experience than I did when it came to ultras. They had more time spent in that training um, over the years than I did, but they were 10 years younger than I was. So the, the the pool definitely shrinks when you get to, I think, a certain point. and I think a lot of it just has to do with lifestyles. you know, a lot of the, a lot of my peers, people who are my same biological age, are, you know, traveling, they're taking long trips, they're doing things like that. and they, you know they're, they're not necessarily racing ultras. However, that's not true all over the place. There are plenty of older women who are running long distances. um, And it's just a little bit more, you know, finding that sort of finding that community of people. But I really look at it as more like a running experience as opposed to a biological age. Hmm. Um, And I think that as we continue to evolve, that more and more people are starting to like now then I become the person who has a little bit more working knowledge of somebody who's maybe in their mid mid to late 50s now that I'm over, you know, the six zero. So I think that's part of it too, is that you start to, you start to kind of evolve through the, you know, that process of becoming more experienced.
0: So you, um, so you got up to the 50 K distance. In fact, you, uh, you went beyond the 50 K distance. What was, what what was your longest uh, uh, ultra?
1: Um, the fifty mile up in Vermont um, to this point has been my has been my longest since, which I've done twice um and both times um, were completely different experiences, which I you know again learning learning through the process um, and training through some challenges and learning to adapt again with you know again under under your umbrella of Tutelage, you know, learning to adapt and change um, and evolve as I've aged, because those were two with COVID almost three years apart. So you know, it wasn't as if as I did with the marathons, where I was doing two or three a year, and you're continually growing really fast. There've been bigger gaps, so it's taken a slightly different sort of approach to that longer, longer distance, if you will, to kind of get there. and I, I do remember last year, last year when I was going through some issues with um, some patellar um just thinking to myself, you know, like, I'm not done. I'm not done. You know, I've got things I still want to, I think I think I still want to chase. And whatever that is at this point is just me take a little bit more time because that's one of the things I think evolving into is. Doing two to three marathons a year is probably not um, as productive an approach as it was when I was in my early 40s. And I was an inexperienced runner, if you will, as now when there are this many miles on the chassis and trying to change things to make sure that the, the chassis stays together through an entire training cycle. And doesn't fall apart beforehand. So, it's it is um, it's a different approach, and it takes I think a lot more mental preparation than anything else. Um, and you and I have you know talked about that, like being patient sometimes, which isn't always my best and strong suit, um, can be my my own worst enemy because I get impatient and I want to do more, and um, and that is probably the biggest challenge I think at this point is. Not only honoring the distance, but honoring your body at that distance, and it—that's still evolving. That's still a challenge. I think it will always be a challenge. I've now accepted the fact that that will always be a challenge, and I just have to be really mindful and in the moment, in you know, walking it back. But having somebody who is riding by my side, as I do with you, that makes it so that I know that I can't do what I used to do, which would be to just get away with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we yeah we 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 have had a number of back and forth conversations uh, about your need to scratch your itch as it relates to being physically active, and I think uh, I think what, you know how we have evolved in terms of your planning and preparation um, is uh, a little fewer classes to teach. Um, and a little b- more diversification in your activity pattern. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Um, and, um, you know, really leaning in on strength as a focused modality at, at certain times of the year. But I got to ask you this question about uh, trail running uh, versus road running. So generally speaking, um, um, you know, as as folks transition from being, uh, r- you know, to, from running on roads to running on trails. One of the uh one of the benefits, of course, of, of running on trails is that it's 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 generally gentler on the body because of the surface that we are impacting, you know, pavement versus versus dirt. Um uh, <laughs> however uh trail running isn't without its peril uh and you have experienced <laughs> you have experienced your share of of trail running peril um so while so while yes for sure um the surface of running off road is easier on the body um but it's not it's not without its its potential uh well source of injury um did you (laughs) have you had any experience with uh with with trail running injuries that weren't that weren't overuse related
1: Uh, yes. From the perspective of taking some pretty hard falls that ended up taking a couple of days to, um, to heal. Um, I would say they're bruised egos more often than not. Um, you know, when you, when you face plant on a trail that you thought was, um, relatively non-technical and then you're fine on the day. So, and that's kind of, I think half the fun and the the intrigue of trail running too, is because it provides so much variety. First of all, you feel, and when I run on trails, I am so much more on mentally. I, I mean, every step I take is, you know, calculated, which works great for a brain like mine too, because I am very logical about that. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, towing a rock because you're chatting with a neighbor next to you who's running, the, you know, Vermont 50 and all of a sudden you're flat on your face, And he's looking at you like, what did you hit? And I'm like, I have no idea. And so, you know, there are always those things that you think are, you know, are there. And actually this, Chris, this is a really, really good um, segue. If you're okay, if I make this and only because we're, you know, we are, you know, probably speaking to some other women out there who are in their 40s. So one of the things that I think is super important to remember um, when, Getting into um, getting into situations like trail running, where there is maybe more risk. Although one might say, on a day today, running on the roads, it's really risky with people who are Christmas shopping. But so, it is it's, it's it it is an assessment of risk. And I had this very same conversation with my with my primary care provider last year uh, because oops, see because um, it because. In my in my late fifties, early sixties, you know my um, my bone health has definitely been impacted. And and last spring, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis. So the conversation about how I wish to keep running on trails, on roads, wherever, but do an activity like running where there is risk um, is all about assessing where the risk is manageable and and you and i have bantered back and forth a little bit about that um, you know it might be that you you need to go you know and I've found this myself I run on trails now that aren't as technical as much because the risk is higher the risk is higher what if i trip toe a root land on a rock and you know fracture my hip what happens if um, you know I slip on some ice on the trail in the winter time even in spikes and i you know, end up breaking my wrist again. Um, you know, there are definitely things that, that one has to calculate that risk. And you, you, you hate to say, well, that's not fair. How women have to do that and men don't? You know, because women's health tends to be a lot more topic of conversation. But I think it's important for women to remember that too from the perspective of, you know, really understanding like if you're new to trail running, you're going to want to assess what your risk factors are and whether or not that is something that you should make sure you understand where, you know, where your risk is relative to things like bone health. Do you know? Do you know what your bone health is at 50, 55? Because that can impact what what you end up being able to do.
0: Well, and I think, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree that, um, there, there are far greater risks with respect to uh, to bone health um, by not being routinely physically active, yes. than to be participating uh, in a sport that is like running that is osteogenic in its nature, um, even if it um, even even if it carries with it some inherent risks of trips and falls. I mean, the truth is that. Um, uh, you know that 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 running as an osteogenic exercise will generally make you hardier and less likely to uh, experience a, a fracture uh, in the event that you do fall. I think it's also probably worth mentioning too that um, that while uh, impact activities like running and walking and and jump roping and skipping um, um, are sort of, you know, kind of come to mind easily and quickly when we think of uh of of an osteogenic uh, exercise approach it is worth mentioning that strength training is also a very powerful osteogenic stimulus or bone building stimulus and so um and you know the strength training be- becomes i think progressively important for 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 both older men and older women but obviously you know for for this bone health reason uh, strength training becomes, I think, increasingly more important for uh, for peri and, and postmenopausal women. Quite quite frankly, uh, for for everyone, even 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 individuals in their in their formative years, because we know that um, that that the, the more bone you can build over your lifetime, um, you, we all suffer some loss in, in in bony matrix as as we get older um but um but by maximizing our bone uh when 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 we when we are you know in our 20s and 30s and during those times in which we can we can really build bone um will just result in us having more bone you know when it's when it's all when it's all said and done so Mm -hmm. um so
1: and i no and i totally agree and that's and i think that that is you know the follow-up comment is that by doing other things that will continue to to preserve, um, and again, my osteoporosis is more genetic than, than it is causal from, you know, activities, um, is that strength training has become an integral part of my activities in order to be able to, or part of my training, in order to continue to do things that maybe have a little risk. And, you know, honestly, there are more slips and falls and risks being broken by slipping on a driveway or a parking lot than there are by women running on. trails. Yeah, so, t- you know, t- t- and again, that's why I say it's really about risk, risk assessment, you know, of things. And um, but, you know, I think that they are they're not mutually exclusive. You, it really is all about the total package and, and what you're doing overall. And that includes a nutrition piece. I mean, that's the other. So I say there are a lot of pieces at play. Um, especially when you're going through menopause. And a lot of times you can't necessarily isolate one and say that's the reason. Maybe there's a little correlation, but it may not be causation. And so, you know, you really are working with constant levers. And as you you and I have found too, like constant levers of increasing one, decreasing the other a little bit, but keeping that balance. Um, You'd be pushing on one harder at one time easing up on another one to see what happens and then making a change as, as things change. So I think that, you know, that again, gets into the variety if you will um, and really the overall, sort of the overall picture of what you're doing and your lifestyle.
0: So um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. So um, b- before we move on to, uh, to, to Liz, the coach, i um, Uh, I I do want to kind of tie a bow on on Liz, the athlete and talk a little bit about what you are currently preparing for. So you you mentioned in passing um, uh, that you have recently had recently dealt with some patella tendinopathy, um, a a knee issue um, that uh, had significantly disrupted uh, your Running pattern. Uh, I mean, you had to take some 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 time away from running as you were dealing with this knee issue. Um, uh, And you know, we we worked together to work through it, Um, (laughs) despite the fact that you were not able to run the way you wanted to run. You nevertheless stayed incredibly active. (laughs) Uh, Suffice to say, um, with um, by by looking for and taking advantage of the things that you could do. But here we are now, uh, as you emerged uh, on the other side of that knee related issue. Um, and you're, (laughs) you're, you're currently preparing for your, well, maybe arguably your most significant, uh, running related challenge to date. Do you want to talk a little bit? Um, actually, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, that disruption in your training, that knee issue that you dealt with and what you are currently training for.
1: Absolutely, so um, as, as, as we all know, and, and um, everybody I think speaks from a different perspective on how COVID impacted, um, you know, some of our activities, some of um, our training um, and, you know, some of our sort of, you know, mental aspects of um, our activities. You know, the, the disruption that, that that COVID sort of brought um, personally, as well as professionally, um, for all of us, was that I spent much less time in a gym strength training. And in fact, it really dropped to what I would consider to be very minimal levels. And as a result, when I returned, when I resumed training in 2021 to train for the Vermont fifty as well as the Pikes Peak Ascent last August, which had been deferred. You know, a lot of these races were a year later than what I had originally and we had originally prepared my body for um, as they were slowly canceled one by one. Um, you know, my body probably wasn't as prepared for Pikes or for um, for the Vermont Fifty. From the perspective of my strength training and you know when I reflect on you know when that knee issue started it started while I was training for the Vermont 50 but I still was not I was not honoring and ramping up my strength training enough um coming out coming out of COVID and so as a result I find that you know for me the strength training is and is absolutely essential to being able to to do these long distances um you know, if I'd been running a 10K or a half marathon, I might be been fine. But when, you know, when I, you're looking at that volume of time on feet um, and training and the elevation that was involved with some of, of that, um, that really, I think, was for me a, a, a big piece with that knee. And it was the second knee. It was the other knee, which the first knee... I was coming out of when I first connected with you. That was my first one in 2017. So um, this was the second one. So I knew I knew what was going on. You and I adapted the training to get through those two races. And I knew I was taking time off when I was done. Well, in the process of that, before that all had happened, I had my eyes on 100K. And I didn't know when that was going to be. But I knew that that was something that I was, um, that I was, very curious about whether I could do. And I happened to um, come across one on on a Facebook group that people were talking about um, called the Grandmaster Ultra, which is in Arizona. And the reason it was really curious for me is that it, A, is in February, and B, it is, you have to be fit to participate. So for a first 100K where the elevation is more reasonable than say the Vermont 100 um, it was um, it was something that made to me made it very very plausible. Sure, very generous cutoff times as a result. That'd be one less stressor to do your to do your first 100k. So that's why I, I looked at it for last year wasn't going to take place because of the knee um, and looked at it for 2023. Um, and was able to, and they limit the numbers. Um, it's up in Chandler, Arizona. So, um, the elevation is, um, not nearly as much as say Vermont or even some of the other hundred Ks, um, that are out there. So I decided that that was the, you know, that was going to be the, the, you know, the, the goal for, for 2023 and see if I could step it up one more notch, um, at this point.
0: And, uh, how has the training gone? I mean, I know how the training's gone, but tell the listener how the training has gone.
1: Training has been different. I think that's the best way to put it. Um, and I, I, I had a little bit of sort of like an aha moment over the over, end of last week with the snowstorm coming in and being a little bit like, ooh, you know. And I remember that when I was doing my road marathoning days, especially once we moved up here and training for Boston during the winter time was downright stressful. And like, oh my gosh, I got to, I'm going to have to figure out how to get these runs. And, you know, and I remember thinking on Thursday with a long run on Saturday that I was just, I was really just looking forward to just going out. And I didn't even plan a route. I literally just turned my watch on and said, I'm just going to go. I don't know where I'm going. I don't even know. I don't even know if I'll be able to be out the whole three hours. I'm just going to go and see where it leads me. That is huge growth for me personally, because I am one that maps the route out and I know exactly how long it is. I can estimate pretty much how long it's going to take me. And so that for me was a huge change in approaching this this particular type of effort versus something like a road marathon.
0: Well, it's a, I think it's important uh, context for the listener uh, to to understand as well that um, for you, for this particular one hundred k in February in Arizona, the fact that you live and are training in New Hampshire um, in the winter time, um, suggests that you know there there are going to be weekends, which is when your long runs are are scheduled. There are going to be weekends in which weather is going to be a significant challenge. So um, your long runs are time-based, not distance-based. Now, every, every coach is a little different. In, and in fact, even, 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 even for me as a coach, um, each athlete's a little different. And, and sometimes it's different. It's different. Um, for an individual athlete, depending on the event that we're preparing for, right? So, um, you know, if if we were preparing for a race like the Vermont 100, that was you know late summer, mid midsummer, uh, your long runs may be distance based, but because you're training <laughs> for an ultra, um, in you know at this time of year in the winter time, uh, it, to me it just doesn't make any sense because of conditions, um, to, to be distance-based. So, so we're, we, we're, we're time-based, so, uh, time-based in terms of your, uh, your, your long runs. Um, well, let's, um, let's, Let's pivot to, uh, to Liz Durant, the coach, right? Because, you know, here's where, I mean, y- y- you and I have a lot of shared interest, obviously. We're, we're both trail runners and mountain runners. Um, I don't race ultras anymore, but I have a, I have a, a fondness for, for running on trails. Um, um, and, and you and I are also, we're also coaches. Um, so uh, tell the listener, listener a little bit more about, about your, your coaching business. Uh, what, who do you coach? What types of things do you, do you coach? What, um, um, you know, what, who, who are the, who are the, who are, who are the folks that are reaching out to you? Um, and what do you do? Just tell us more about your coaching business.
1: Sure. No, I appreciate that. Um, as I said early on, um, in the the podcast, you know, I, I started out because I was fortunate enough to, um, to, to stumble on somebody who was and ended up being a friend and mentor um, in down in Tennessee. And at the time when I had just really started to get into the sort of the thick of competitive running, um, it was an opportunity for me to be able to you know, just sort of dip my toe into something that I thought might be, uh, you know, kind of right up my lane. I could do it around kid hours, um, you know, train people and, you um, it was something that was fairly flexible. I enjoyed the idea of being able to um, you know, take what I'd learned as a runner um, and be able to share that with um, others um, that might be interested in doing the same So when I was training when I when I was doing my the personal training that I was doing down in Tennessee it was in a it was in a in a gym environment um, and it was in, an, in a, it was actually a great learning ground it was a great sort of opportunity to be boots on the ground and learn from some really really good professionals I was very lucky I learned from some really good professionals and um, when we moved up to New Hampshire the the you know the opportunities for me to do personal training were slightly different it was just a different environment up here different types of gyms different types of um, facilities and I fell more into the teaching um, of fitness classes, because again, I could work them around school hours. It was, you know, teach a class and be done, move on to other things. And so I, I did a lot of very, very part-time. Um, when our youngest was in middle school, I went back to um, to work, um, a job outside the house. I'd had a couple of businesses in the house. And, and through all that, I started to sort of build um, this um, understanding of I really loved working with. I loved working at the time with young athletes. Um, I uh, coached and officiated across and field hockey for several years. So I really enjoyed working with young athletes. And then I really enjoyed working with, with um, women in their forties. And so as I started to move away from doing so much teaching, when we started working together and going back to more personal training um, and building a clientele around that, I started to work with more women um, in their forties, fifties, sixties, and even beyond. Um, I have clients that range in age from, um, 40 to, um, it, with the exception of a couple of high school athletes that I work with when they're on vacation, um, 40 up to 85. Um, they all are ones I've worked with for a number of years. So I do both in-person training as well as virtual training, um, that was something that I had actually already moved into a little bit pre COVID, but then with COVID, of course, that, um, that was a huge you know, pivot for all of us um, doing zoom training. So I will do zoom training as well. Um, and I, and many of my clients who went to zoom during COVID have actually stayed on zoom. They, it works for their lifestyle really well. Um, and many of them travel, many of them go to Florida for the time. So we'll continue to work together. So instead of having big breaks, in our, you know, our time working together, we're able to continue to work together even when they are maybe down in Florida for the winter. So, um, it, it works really well for them. Um, and our focus really and truly is on, you know, one, what their priorities are, um, and you know, what it is that they want to do to be able to continue to do the things that they love to do. Many of them are grandparents, and so they're running around with their grandchildren all the time. Um, many of them are skiers, so. Um, many of them are hikers, you know, just where we are, we, we tend to have, you know, clients that, um, that enjoy doing those kinds of activities. So, um, so really is a broad range of, of, you know, interests, um, that my clients have. So we do a lot of different kinds of things to, um, kind of do more season specific things, um, that gets them ready maybe to hike or get them ready, maybe to ski. Um, and then I, I, added nutrition coaching to my offerings, to my services back in 2017, because I found that even for myself, and this was a journey that came really from my own experience um, to where I really realized and appreciated how important that was in menopause and paramenopause and menopause, um, that nutrition piece. And I did a lot of research when I first went back and um, became a certified coach that, um, that there are there is a significant amount of disordered eating in empty nesters. And I never really thought about it or really like took time to sort of analyze that. But there's a lot of research out there that shows that women and even men, um, when they become empty nesters, which might be in their 40s or 50s, um, develop some pretty disordered eating habits. And I myself experienced some pretty significant issues around nutrition in my 40s. And my running. Um, And so what I really realized is there's a lot more attention that needs to be paid um, to how women see themselves, view themselves, um, especially as we get into 40s, 50s and 60s um, and how we develop a mindset around who we are, uh, where we're headed, who we want to be, what we want to do you know, a year from now, five years now from now, 10 years from now. So I focus a lot on um, outcomes. You know, where do you want to, what do you want to be doing five years from now? And how can we reverse engineer that? And so I spend a lot of time with my clients working on mindset. Um, I do have a 12 week program that I um, work with virtually with clients where we do um, everything from workouts for them to nutrition coaching to mindset work. Um, and it really is meant to load their tool build up, um, with all kinds of things and maybe work through some, you know, some things that, that maybe they feel are, are, um, struggles or priorities, and then, um, start to help them see the path forward. Because I think that, you know, the whole thing of, you know, entering into your forties and fifties, and, you know, the 2.0 or, you know, the 3.0 or the, you know, who do I want to be when I grow up is, um, is really, it's really important conversation. It's really, um, the, what our bodies are going through, what women are going through sometimes in their fifties and sixties in terms of their, their reproductive organs, um, hysterectomies, you name it. There's, there's so many pieces. And one of the most beneficial, um, programs that I have, um, certified in is called girls gone strong. And it, and I, and I recommend it to anybody who's really interested in learning more about themselves. Um, it is, really all about um, diving in deep into what our bodies are going through and how we can use that as information to make informed dis- choices and decisions moving forward. And that there's actually more conversation than ever before. Um, you know, I know I've mentioned to you, you know, Stacy Sims is doing a lot of work around women in performance Um, and her books Roar um, and Next Level are both really good resources for women to read, just to learn more. Um, And I think that's one of the things, more and more open conversation about women and um, some of the things that they experience going through menopause are becoming, um, it's it, it's we're getting it out there and that's good good information around hormone therapy not um, misinformation um, having a team with a, your provider to make sure that you have conversations around what options there are for women um, I honestly don't think that if I hadn't dived into this as a coach and also as a as a you know participant that I would be doing what I'm doing right now without that information without that knowledge without that um knowing that there are options out there. And I think that's, what's really important. And that's what I try and work with, with my clients too, is helping them build their team. Um, You know, find the people that help them to um, understand and work with their bodies, making sure they're getting the the, the right diagnostics, you know, encouraging them to do that on a regular basis, to, to, to give the gift to themselves of good health and framing that in the, perspective of longevity and if you love to run long long distances that's a big part of it if you want it to be it doesn't have to be so um, that's how that's sort of the, the the you know the direction that i come from with it and i would say that right now that the majority of my work really is working with women going um through menopause or even past and beyond menopause well into their 70s um, and keeping them active and strong my 86 year old she is she is she's very strong
0: um. So, interestingly enough, the the American College of Sports Medicine, which for me is the is the gold standard in terms mm-hmm. of uh, in, in terms of professional resources uh, or a professional resource uh, and organization in the field of exercise science, um, the American College of Sports Medicine does not have a position stand on exercise and, um, and and menopause. Interestingly enough, they have they have dozens of other position stands, but they have yet. Uh, they have yet to, um, to to release one. So I ask I ask you then, Liz, uh, as as someone who has personal and professional experience um, in the in the in the challenges related to peri and and postmenopause, um, w- w- what are some of the greatest uh, fitness related challenges um, that um, that uh, that women face um, as they're going through that that time in their life?
1: I I mean, if if you are asking what I hear from my clients the most, sleep. I mean, I think that's, you know, that is probably the one thing in in many ways because it's so physical. Um, Things like hot flashes and um, I mean, I always tell the story about I was probably at the time 45 or so and I was teaching a very sweaty spin class and had a hot flash smack in the middle of it. And, you know, there wasn't enough sweat pouring off my body at the time. in the spin class to all of a sudden, literally, like, it was like a faucet got turned on. And I remember bursting out laughing and thinking, are you kidding me? And, you know, of course, everyone's sort of looking at me like, why are you laughing? I'm like, oh, no worries. I just had a hot flash. And they, I mean, it was just like this moment of, you know, sort of comedic moment at the time. And of course, every, you know, half the room was sort of laughing with me. Um, But... You know, I think those are the those those sleep challenges are probably the thing that I find to be most frustrating for women because they're not really that easy to solve. And you don't once you think you've got it figured out, something changes. And that's actually one of kind of the things that people I try to work with clients to understand too is that let me just tell you right now, like once you think you got figure it figured out, it's gonna change. So that's just what menopause is all about it is a constant evolution so as as that happens then you you learn to adapt like you learn to you you learn to move through it right and I think you know I always say like you know staring down age with with you know humility humor and courage well there is a little bit of humor in it at times sometimes not um but sleep as we know can really impact, especially women who are performance minded or performance oriented, um, can be really frustrating. And it can actually have some real physical implications. And so that's probably one of the things that um, I wish people to get as much information as possible on because there, again, there is more data being collected all the time on ways in which to approach um, dealing with menopausal symptoms. Um, the American Menopause Society is a place now that is starting to develop these position statements. Um, And you'll start to see more and more, I think, coming out, citing some of the work that they're doing. Um, And again, the more conversation and dialogue, uh, the more we're going to learn. And one of the things that I get constantly reminded of is that many of the studies that have been done how that we're they're looking at various aspects of of longevity and age and things like that a lot of the studies are done on men and very few women so there are more studies starting to crop up by the day by the week by the month it's going to take time to gather all this information and formulate position statements and things that are women only or majority of women so as people are looking at that information and looking at information as to how to help, you know, solve some of these challenges, that's something to keep in mind too, is, you know, where is this information coming from? Who's doing the study and who's in the study? And so one of the things I do work with my clients a lot on is how do you get information that is of value? Um, it is reliable. How do you wade through a lot of these studies? Um, and you know, being careful not to go down rabbit holes of promises because menopausal women can be very vulnerable, myself included and sensitive to wanting to solve a problem in a hurry. Um, and it, unfortunately it's just not that easy. Um, but I would, I mean, I think I had sleep challenges in my forties, um, but I didn't honor it enough and ended up in some, you know, in some peril with injuries. And so that's one of the things I think we're learning a lot more about is how, especially for performance minded.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to that point, uh, there's, here's another, here's another way that you and I are connected. Um, uh, I happen, I happen to, uh, to own a whoop band W H O O P a whoop band. Right. Um, (laughs) uh, I, I got a Whoop band, um, uh, which, f- for the listener that's not familiar with what a Whoop band is, it's a, uh, it's essentially a, um, uh, it, it's an accelerometer. It's a, it's an activity tracking device that that um, that you wear, uh, or you can wear all the time, and the device will uh, will uh, track your activity, um, in- including stuff like heart rate data. But it also uh, it can also be used as a as a means to collect sleep data if you wear it in the overnight hours. So anyway, I um, I I I got a Whoop band. I, I purchased the um, the uh, the plan because I had athletes that um, that had the device and were using the device, and so I, I felt like I needed to understand the device better. Anyway, long story long, um, they upgraded me to the to the 4.0, and so I had this 3.0 band that I wasn't going to use anymore. And they had an upcycle program where uh, you could gift it to someone else. Uh, and you ended up with my uh, my original Whoop Band, my 3.0. My question to you uh, is, is this. Um, so one thing that we know, or, or one of the things that I um, discovered when I started using the Whoop Band to collect my sleep data was that um, before using the whoop band consistently to collect sleep information um i thought i understood what a good night's sleep was i i also thought i understood what what a poor night's sleep was from a quality standpoint what was very eye-opening for me pun intended uh, when i started to collect sleep data was that um, those assumptions of quote-unquote good sleep and bad sleep um, from a quality standpoint did not jive with the data that I was collecting, meaning this, um, that um, a, a typical fairly disrupted night of sleep, um, I'm, I'm a 54-year-old, and so um, I do need to get up multiple times uh, in the overnight hour. Um, those multiple disruptions in my sleep, I always just assumed equated to a a poor night's sleep from a quality standpoint. Well, it turns out a disrupted night's sleep does not necessarily equate to a poor performance night worth of sleep um, as it relates to, you know, time spent in the deep uh, or restorative sleep cycles. Um, And and again, I I would not have known that if I had not started collecting my sleep data. Um, Liz, do you, um, well, two questions. First question, um, what, what did you discover when you started collecting your sleep data with the whoop band? Um, and then, um, secondly, do, do you, do you feel that there is value and benefit to, uh, to understanding your sleep from a analytics standpoint?
1: Um, I'll tackle the first part first. You're, so you're spot on, on the at least from my perspective too, on what I under or felt was a good night's sleep versus, I shouldn't say good, a productive night's sleep versus an unproductive night's sleep. And I I mean, I laugh sometimes because I will often check it first thing in the morning when it says to me, you had less deep sleep last night. And I'll be like, no, I did not I felt great. You know, and I'm hollering (laughs) at my phone because (laughs) I'm thinking, no, I had a great night. And I look at it and it says, you know, orange zone. And I'm thinking, no, and so it is really interesting. Now, I will say that it took me probably a couple months worth of data to gather to really understand some of the trends. Um, but he, here's my takeaway from wearing those. And I, I do appreciate, thank you for, for giving me this opportunity because I don't think I would have jumped into it otherwise. Um, is I I still have a lot to learn as you and I have bantered back and forth uh, a little bit on it. I still have a lot to learn about how a lot of it not necessarily interconnects in terms of the technology, but interconnects with my life. And I've made some observations, even in the last few weeks, as my training has ramped up. Although the number of days is not ramping up, my hours are ramping up a little bit. Some other levers are going down a little bit. I'm spending less time walking. I'm spending more time, you know, running. I'm doing less biking, because we're not biking outside. Um, And, I've noticed I'm getting more productive night sleep as a result. But when I've had nights when I've slept, you know, what I think to be a lot of hours, let's just say, you know, almost eight, that's a lot for me. Um, And it says that it's unproductive, and I'm not recovered enough. And I sleep seven, and I am, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. So in diving into sleep, sort of the sleep aspect of that, one of the the aha moments that I had in the last couple of months was I coach at Orange Theory twice a week at night. And it's a, it's not a, it's not a physical job from the perspective of I'm not doing the workout as I coach the members of the, of Orange Theory. I'm, if anybody's been to an Orange Theory workout, they know you, you go in and a coach with a personal trainer, takes them through the template of the day. Um, you might be doing a little demoing, but other than that, you're coaching from the floor and I have had my worst quality night sleep those nights and I kept thinking I don't understand that I didn't run today I didn't I didn't bike today I didn't and I kept trying to figure out the disconnect for myself and what I've come to realize one is that I was typically staying up later those nights because I was getting home later and the big aha moment for me this past fall was that if I could target my bedtime around 930, my productivity in my sleep would wake up. If I was even up till 1015, even if I slept later in the morning, it went down. And, and, I, and I would say I've always been a kind of like go bed early kind of person. But when I was injured, especially, and I was wearing it at the time that I was healing that knee, my my numbers weren't great at all because I was staying up so late because I wasn't tired. So for me, it really is about committing to the bedtime, as opposed to the number of hours of sleep. Because even when I'm getting, let's say, more hours of sleep, I was I was having an outcome that wasn't as favorable as when I was getting into bed at 9:30. So clearly. What that says to me is that I get my best quality sleep earlier in the night. And that's not the same for every person. Some people get their best quality sleep from five to seven in the morning. So, but for me, I get my best quality sleep earlier at night and I'm better off going to bed earlier and getting up at the same time than trying to go to bed later and sleeping later.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I I think you you hit on really what, what the takeaway message is with respect to, um, to, to getting uh, higher quality, more restorative sleep, whether you, whether you wear a sleep device or not. And that is, um, I mean, of all the, of all the, the, the variables that impact, uh, restorative sleep that are outside of your control, um, perhaps the most significant variable that is within your control is around the timing of your of your bedtime you know the 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 body loves consistency consistency in all things i mean you 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 made the point about about those uh about teaching those orange theory classes a little bit later uh in the day or, or or in the evening and uh and and how that you know that resulted in a disruption in your restorative sleep cycle um as much consistency and routine as you can create in all things related to your life, with respect to your activity pattern and your nutrition, um, and the timing of your, of, of your bedtime specifically, uh, as it relates to this point, um, the much more likely it is that you are going to get, um, um, much more restorative sleep. And that's really that's really the name of the game as it, as it relates to sleep as an important health related variable. Um, It's not about the number of hours that you are in bed. I mean, you, you made the point as well um, that um, just because you are in bed, a certain number of hours does not necessarily mean that you are, you are in um, significant amounts of time in restorative sleep cycles. Um, it really is about consistency about developing a consistent bedtime routine in terms of timing. Um, now I, you know, what I tend to coach in terms of timing is a, uh, is a 30 minute window, you know, plus or minus the plus or minus your target bedtime. If you can get into bed plus or minus 30 minutes within that, within that window, that's essentially developing consistency. I mean, you know, it's, it's not necessarily always easy in our, in our very busy lives to, um, go to bed at exactly the same time, but if we can get into bed at relatively um, relatively a consistent time, it's that consistency of go to bed time that almost always translates to more time in restorative sleep. and And those two restorative sleep cycles, one of the restorative sleep cycles is a mental mentally restorative sleep cycle. That's our slow wave sleep. Uh, and our physically restorative sleep cycle is our REM sleep, right? So that's, um, spending significant amounts of time in those, in those deep sleep cycles is, is incredibly important. Let me, let me, let me ask this, um, this follow-up question as it relates to, uh, uh, to, to your coaching. You know, it's, it's said that, um, That coaching is about helping your clients develop habits, right? Um, What habits do you coach, Liz?
1: It depends on it depends on what their priorities are. So one, some of the you know, there are always those those um, touch points, if you will, of people that resonate. And one of the people that resonated with me very early on in my, in my coaching journey was James Clear's Atomic Habits. And it's, and it's, I, I, I actually give that book to my clients a gift, because I think that it is, it is a gift to understand why, why the why behind um, what a habit can do. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's, there's always this challenge of, you um, polarizing things, um, being good or bad, being clean or dirty, being, um, you know, on or off a wagon. And so habits for some people can actually be triggering. And so knowing what the priorities are for somebody, um, I love to work with a client to help them develop the habits that they want. Right, so if I dictate three habits for them, right? Okay, this week you work on X, Y, and Z. And if you can't do that, well, then you you know you failed, which you know doesn't work. Um, we know that even from kids, it doesn't work. But if I if I can work with them to get their buy in on what they want to work on, and then we develop habit and even more important strategy around that habit, because that's really where the consistency can start to evolve is if there is strategy around those habits and then i like to i always think of it as like if you if you if you stand on one leg and you feel really balanced that's great what happens if i come over and push you right now all of a sudden you're fighting to hold your balance right well that's my job as your coach my job is to actually knock you off balance a little bit and see if you can recover and 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 stay in balance. And and I think that's one of the things that makes the coaching relationship so, so um, beneficial too, is challenging each other. And I like to challenge my clients with some things, ones that I know that are ready for a challenge. And, and I know that they have that capacity to, you know, to take it up a notch, if you will. Others, it's really about foundation. And I start with the foundational things. Are you drinking enough water? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you you know, you're walking or moving every single day. And are you focusing on what you're, you know, what you're putting in your mouth? And, you know, if we can just focus on basics and managing stress to start and build some strategy and consistency around just what, what are your minimums for that? What do you need as a minimum? What can you commit to as a minimum? You know, it comes down to commitment. I know you love the word intention, you know, and commitment, intention, um, and building consistency. And in, in the middle of all that is growth and resilience and how we deal with things when things aren't going well. It's very easy when things are working. I, I mean, I know that from running 26.2 miles 23 times. Really, there wasn't one marathon that there wasn't a moment in there that I wasn't going, what the heck is happening? And so we yeah, I mean, practicing yeah, that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we 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 talk all the time about um, the most challenging training units from an adversity standpoint are almost always the most beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I need to self-correct myself. I misspoke earlier. Um, slow wave sleep is our physically restorative sleep, rem sleep is our, our, our mentally restorative sleep. I always I always get those two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, sixes and nines. So um, that's, that's my self-correction there. Um, I, I want to talk about one more thing as it relates to your, uh, to your coaching, because it, it's an, it's an important element of your coaching and that's performance nutrition. Um, what have you learned about performance nutrition uh, over the years, you know, personally, and, and then, um, and then how have you applied it to your coaching? You know, I, and, 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 I, and what I'll say to that is that, Um, You know, you you've said that as an eater, uh, you you personally practice vegetarianism, veganism, something called flexitarianism, which I actually had to look up. Uh, I'll have you tell the listener what what being a flexitarian is Um, and 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 everything in between. Right. From from an eating standpoint. Um, and, and y- y- you admit struggling with, with, with what you call your food identity. Um, so actually fir- first question, um, w- uh, what is food identity? And then, um, through all of that experience that your own personal nutrition journey, y- y- your own personal nutrition journey, um, w- w- what do you, what, what, what have you taken away from that and, and what do you apply, um, uh, uh, to your coaching clients as it relates to, to nutrition? Uh,
1: yeah. And yes. Um, so my forties were a, um, were not a great time for really, I would say my early forties were not a great time for what I would now consider the, um, healthy relationship with food. And, and honestly it stems back to my childhood. I mean, I knew that once I was able to understand some of the, the why behind it and some of the um, some behavior around it, um, and I'm always I'm always happy to share my experience um, about you know the some of the emotional pieces around it, um, you know, playing games with with food, um, you know, starving myself for two three days and running every single day, um, you know, to try and essentially um, you know try and decrease what I was, you know, eating in order to be able to up what I was burning, Um, not really understanding how it all worked at the time, of course. And coming from this emotional place of um, external affirmation of, um, wow, you look great. Wow, you look like you've lost a lot of weight. Um, I always struggled with comparing myself to others. And we've had this conversation relative to performance. Um, and I felt myself really getting in, like almost trapping myself into a corner with it so that I didn't know how to escape it to the point where I was, um, I wouldn't eat after seven o'clock. I wouldn't eat, uh, anything that was, looked like a potato. Um, I was literally just eating protein and vegetables. That was it and not enough of it. Um, and then I moved over to eating more vegetarian thinking the meat was bad um and then i went further to um, take on a little bit more of a vegan um, approach and i would say in part a lot of it was the exploration because i really hadn't really figured out what was working for me um, i've used the term food identity if if um if somebody says to me i'm paleo or somebody says to me i'm a vegan what that tells me is you identify that's your identification that's your identity right as an as an eater And that can be complex in so many ways, because you no longer, you may no longer have a healthy relationship or association with other types of food. And instead of saying, you know, or being a, you know, somebody who just chooses not to eat meat, for whatever reason, um, you, there's this strong social Pressure to label it. And I've talked a lot of times, you know, in my Facebook group and with clients and things like that about getting away from calling ourselves something, which is why I call it out in my bio, because I did, I named myself everything in the book for years. And it wasn't until I had gone through uh, my certification as a nutrition coach, and then taken a subsequent year long master class master course, that I really understood how that was actually a very, very sort of bad relationship with food that was kind of coming through that and going back and spending a lot of time redeveloping my relationship with food and not only from a performance perspective because I could very easily say that living on protein vegetables got me by just fine and that was part of the challenge I actually was performing better I was performing the best I'd ever performed and that was that affirmation piece to do it more. If I didn't eat for two days, and then went and ran, and then had protein and vegetables that day, I was performing better. And it wasn't until I hit my forties, late forties, early fifties, when the walls of the house came crumbling down because there was no foundation. And it came. It, it really, it morphed itself. You know, it it came out in the way of getting hurt. It came out in the way of no energy. It came out in the way of just being um, unhappy with myself. Um, It came out with having removed myself socially from situations Um, and and to be frank and honest, drinking wine for dinner, because why not? I could run and I was performing great. So why not? Why not keep doing it? And that dysfunctional relationship just continued to just brew all through my late forties, until it didn't. And then when it didn't, it was ugly. And that's really my journey of going back and sort of re like peeling away the layers of what exactly was going on and rebuilding my relationship with food as food for what it was and what it provided me. Um, And that was, that took years. It wasn't, that was not a, that was not a, you know, a, a two week program. It was, it was years of going back and because I had to undo everything that I had built up in my mind, all the things that I had built up in my mind as what I should be doing and completely rebuild it to a new relationship with food. And as a result, I, I feel as if I um, I can step back, I can meet people where they are on it because I've been through it. Um, I also work really hard to try and Understand where they're coming from, because I've been there. I know what that feels like, and I know what it feels like to go to bed feeling really hungry, but darn it, you're not going to eat. And and it's not because there isn't food in the fridge, because you told yourself if you eat, that's bad.
0: Yeah, I think, I I think the unfortunate thing is that sometimes we uh, we make connections or cause and effect. Um, where 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 they don't really exist, right? I mean, it, it very well could have been um, your your performance at that time could have very well been multifactorial and multidimensional. There may be there may have been any number of reasons why you were performing really really well as it turns out, um, you know, you were also participating in a somewhat disordered eating pattern that you, you made the connection between performance and that disordered eating pattern, which just sort of strengthened your commitment to it. Even if there was no relationship between what you were eating and how you were performing at that time. Um, Liz, what, if, if people want to find out more about, uh, about your coaching business, how do they, how do they find out more about? about uh, what you've Uh, got going on and how do people connect with you?
1: um, Well, and just one quick thing too. I just want to make, I just want to clarify one part of that. I just want to make sure that people understand that that process that I went through to basically take down the house and build it back up again, I did not do myself as as just a nutrition coach. I worked with a registered dietitian. And that's a really important thing to understand. That's why I want to make sure that's really clear. Like I did not do that all myself, just like I don't figure out my volume and my training all by myself. I have you on my team to help me do that. Um, and so just so first off, it's acknowledgement. That was the biggest thing that I, I struggled to do was to acknowledge I had an issue, right? And I, I was not diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, I had disordered eating, which is very different. That's, believe me, Chris, you could do a whole podcast on this itself with women and in in, in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And, um, and I think that there's, again, more, there's more discussion around this than ever before, which is healthy right now, because we need to have the conversation. Many women hide it. I hid it for four years, four years of not eating with my children. I need a bowl of applesauce. And so, you know, I think just so people know that it's really important to work with a qualified professional, a registered dietitian, if they have any concerns about some of the things that they may be experiencing, some of the thoughts they may be having, or some of the um, behaviors they may find themselves doing. And don't hesitate to ask.
0: Yeah, I I, no, I think I think that's a I think that's a that's a great point, and I, I appreciate you uh you you bringing that up, um and I I was very intentional when I used the term uh, disordered eating rather than mm-hmm. an eating disorder yes. because I, um I I I know the difference, I understand the difference, I appreciate the difference, um uh, you know I, I have I have had the opportunity to work with uh, dozens of athletes who have had. Um, not only disordered eating patterns, but also but also athletes that have had um, legitimate clinical eating disorders as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very yeah. sensitive to the to, to the to the, the terminology there too. Um, yep. So it uh, is back great to my conversation.
1: Question. Yes. So you answered your yeah. answer uh, to I, your, answer to your question. Yes.
0: Yeah. How do how do people how do people learn more about about you and and your coaching business?
1: Best place to reach me is via email, um, which is Affinity Fitness six zero three at gmail.com. Um, send me an email. I'm happy to jump on and chat just about what's going on with them. Um, you know, offline about, you know, things that they feel that they just want to learn more about, uh, point them in the direction of additional resources, um, things I've, you know, come across people that I uh feel are doing a lot of really, really good work in the in this area of um, women athletes and menopause. Um, I think it's exciting. I think, you know what, I look at my daughters, we have two and I know you have two and, you know, I look at them and I say, what is possible for them when they get to their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, by the time they get there is if we do it right, is likely going to be even better than what we're experiencing.
0: Um, Yeah, I, I, I could not, I couldn't agree with that, uh, with that more. and i'll I'll include the link um, uh, in my in my show notes. I'll include your um, your email address um, uh, for the listener uh, that maybe didn't didn't catch that address as you as you described it. Liz. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your your knowledge and insight on this really important topic. thanks thanks again for joining me.
1: Well, thank you. and thank you so much for the candid conversation. I think it's awesome that um, that this is just another channel for people to find the resources that they're looking for.
0: Well, I, I I agree 100%. Thanks again, Liz.
1: Thank you. Have a great holiday.
0: Thank you. You too. I've seen so much growth in Liz as an athlete in the last six years. And she's right. A lot of that growth was in her mindset. Although she didn't talk much about it, her newfound passion for gravel riding has been a force multiplier for her trail running. As a resource and role model for active women over the age of 50, I can't think of anyone better than Liz. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to your homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half, Walk Double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.